Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Okay, so we talked about hydroxychloroquine last week in a major study that was published in The Lancet, uh, a study that had a major impact uh, because you saw as a result uh, a number of trials that were still underway internationally be put on hold because of the significance of the reports. Researchers in an observational study involving almost 100,000 patients found that not only did hydroxychloroquine not provide a benefit with regard to COVID-19, there was actually an increased risk to those who were taking it. So that was pretty serious. But hang on a second here. Lancet has now posted an expression of concern about this study. Uh, The reason why the researchers had access to such a large database of patients was because there's an analytics company called Surgisphere uh, that has a database, and that's what they used. But it turns out there are problems with that database. Lancet has posted this uh, expression of concern with regard to this study. There was actually a different study in the New England Journal of Medicine. Researchers used the same database uh, to suggest that a different drug, a blood pressure drug, could be beneficial. So some questions being raised about that study. So today, the World Health Organization has announced that uh, it is going to resume its study of hydroxychloroquine. But we've also got today uh, word of another study published in the New England Journal of Medicine involving scientists at the University of Alberta, University of Manitoba, and McGill. Now, this appears to be the first double-blind, randomized, controlled trial on the drug finds that it is not effective in preventing COVID-19 people exposed to the virus. So some additional science on that front. So uh, a lot to unpack here. Wanted to bring back into the conversation uh, Derek Lowe, uh, who's a uh, medical chemist uh, and writes about uh, drug and vaccine development, uh, the In the Pipeline blog at sciencemag.org. Derek, thanks so much for joining us here once again. Welcome back to the program. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. All right. So like I say, there, there's a lot to unpack here, but let's start oh, with yeah. this Lancet study. The Lancet, obviously, one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world. Uh, so when we see a study this big in the Lancet, that's going to carry a lot of weight. So what, what got screwed up here? Yeah, I was actually pretty impressed by the study when I first read it, because as you summarized, it relied on electronic health records from a huge number of people at hospitals around the world. So according to the paper, they looked at people who had been in the hospital for coronavirus therapy, and some had gotten hydroxychloroquine, and some hadn't, and they just looked at the outcomes. So initially, I was quite impressed by this, but it turns out there are a lot of questions about where these data came from, how they were able to get all of it so quickly, and work up the statistics so quickly, because it seems to be a fairly small company that's not very transparent. 
so what's the what's the problem with the data? Because the, this, I mean, the study hasn't been retracted. Initially, I no. think the Lancet had posted a correction, but now it's an expression of concern. So right. there's still a, a chance, maybe that you know this can all be sorted out. But what what seems to be the yeah. issue, as best we understand? Well, at first there were some issues with some of the individual data points, and the the company Surgispear came out and said, "Oh, okay, yeah, we see what happened. There were some hospitals that were." actually in another area that got coded as being in a different area and we've got all that straightened out but then there are other questions raised about how did you people get so much electronic medical data because these data are out there but they're not easy to get because of well privacy concerns and also because different hospitals around the world use different systems different regulatory authorities you can imagine the red tape that you have to go through if you want to go around and say, hey, I'd like 8,000 patient records from here to India. Right. So it was a surprise to people that this little company had been able to do this so quickly and so thoroughly. And people who are experienced at trying to get these kinds of medical records were some of the first to say, okay, that's really impressive. How exactly did you do that? Now, the company itself, Surgispear, says that they are bringing in outside experts to audit their results and the methods by which they collected the data. And that's why the New England Journal on their study and Lancet on the hydroxychloroquine one, that's why they're waiting. They're like, okay, you're doing an audit? Fine. Do it fast, do it well, and it better be good. Let's see it. Yeah, and, and look, it's important to sort this out. I mean, as, as you wrote oh, this yeah. week, that, you know, a bad study isn't just a bad study, that, that bad medical papers can do actual harm, and especially, yes. you know, in the midst of a pandemic and trying to answer some big questions, it's, it's even more important. Absolutely, absolutely. The signal to noise, as we scientists say, is not really good during these pandemic conditions, but we've got to do everything we can to make sure we have solid data to base our conclusions on. And a paper with this many data points in that good a journal, your initial assumption is, hey, this is great. This is just what we've been looking for. So if it turns out that when you really pop the hood and start digging underneath, if it turns out that there are problems with it, we have to know that immediately. So honestly, I'm upset that this paper is proving to be so messy, but I'm glad that the mess was uncovered very quickly. Yeah, and that that's important. So, I, I mean, you know, I think people are, are honestly trying to answer this question, not, not just around hydroxychloroquine, but around other drugs, whether there's sure. the potential that we can retool some existing drugs uh, to target COVID-19 in various ways. I mean, even before this Lancet study, there was, it was kind of a mixed bag, wasn't there, when it came to hydroxychloroquine? Uh, there sure is, and that's something that people need to remember, that this is not the only paper that has shown no benefit for it. There have been a couple of papers that have shown a mild benefit, several that have shown no benefit, and there's also been some that have shown actual harm with it, with side effects. The problem is we haven't until today, as you mentioned before the hour, we haven't until today had a gold standard type study double-blinded, where neither the physicians nor patients know who's getting what, placebo-controlled, intentional from the start to study hydroxychloroquine. And this afternoon, we're finally getting one. We are, yeah. This is this uh, study in the New England Journal of Medicine. So this involves uh, researchers uh, from Canada. This was uh, 821 adults uh, looked at yep. through the U.S., also here in Alberta, Quebec, and Manitoba. 
Um, I, I believe this is looking at the prophylaxis uh, question. Is, exactly. is that your understanding here? Okay. Exactly. They're looking at people who had had a high-risk exposure, who were otherwise healthy, not showing any symptoms at the time, but had had a high-risk exposure such as at home with an infected family member. So that's, that's about as high risk as you get. So within four days of their exposure, they got picked at random to get either hydroxychloroquine or placebo. And then they followed them up after the, the dosage schedule. They followed them up to see how many of these people actually came down with the coronavirus. Uh, so they find that in this trial, high doses of hydroxychloroquine did not prevent illness compatible with COVID-19 when initiated within four days after high-risk or moderate-risk exposure. So exactly. pretty clear findings on that question. It is, and this is the best controlled study we've had so far. I was really pleased to finally see this coming out because the authors had mentioned earlier that the study was complete and they're working on the data, that they had submitted it, and a lot of people have been kind of shifting from one foot to the other waiting for this paper to come out. It goes live on the New England Journal at 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, but there are already press reports coming out about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in the meantime, look, uh, more research is being done. I mentioned at the outset the World Health Organization is going to resume its study, uh, you know, as a result of, of what The Lancet has, has done here. So we're, we're going to get more data. We're going to get more studies. And we're going to get a better understanding of all of this. We are. We are. There are some other well-controlled studies that are still going or haven't reported yet. If you look on the clinicaltrials.gov site and do a search for hydroxychloroquine and coronavirus, you get 97 studies. Now, not all of those are active. And some of them, to be fair, are too small and probably too crappy, to use a scientific term. Yeah. But there are some good ones in there. We're going to get more. But honestly, I think if this were a tremendous drug that had a huge effect, we would have seen that already, and we're not. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, full coverage on all of this, again, sciencemag.org. Derek, thanks again for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Glad to. Glad to. Talk to you soon. All right. Likewise, take, take care. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Derek Lowe, medical chemist, uh, drug discovery researcher, uh, the In the Pipeline blog at uh, sciencemag.org, looking at drugs and vaccines that are in various stages of development uh, and what the evidence is telling us. Uh, so clearly there's an issue here with this company, Surgisphere, and their hospital database, their patient database, which was used not just in this Lancet study, but in a different big uh, study in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, on another potential drug. Uh, for hydroxychloroquine. So expressions of concern have been posted to both studies. And Surges Fierce says they're going to do an independent audit uh, of their database to try to address some of these concerns. So we'll see what comes of that. Now, the premier uh, had said the other day that, you know, things keep progressing as they are in Alberta. There's the potential that phase two of the relaunch might actually uh, be moved up. I know he's, he's floated the uh, June 19th date in the past. Maybe we'll learn some more this week. Obviously, the relaunch involves various stages. And so for the Alberta government, like other governments, it, it's about assessing risks. What gets included in the first stage? What gets included in the second stage? What still needs to wait for the third stage? Right? I mean, what, what is safe to do? What is safe to reopen? How do we assess risk when it comes to various aspects and sectors of the economy? Some entail more risk than others, risk to workers, risks to customers, etc. Uh, the CDL Institute this week, uh, with a really interesting uh, new study looking at uh, the question of risk and a new risk assessment tool 
that can help provinces guide the opening and closing of various sectors of the economy. It's the COVID Risk Reward Assessment Tool, and it's based on 300 occupations across 100 industries. So really, I think an important contribution in in helping these decisions get made. Joining us to talk more about it, one of the researchers involved, uh, Gail Simard-Duplan, researcher uh, and a research chair in intergenerational economics at HEC Montreal. Gail, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so how do we go about, you know, this this whole question of of assessing and, and measuring risk? Uh, well, so we're thinking about risk in terms of viral transmission risk within occupations, right? So uh, what we've done that's really special is that we've looked at the characteristics of jobs, right? So, for instance, uh, dentists are people who work in close proximity with our clients. So that's one of the characteristics we're, we're looking at. Uh, but we've also looked at the worker characteristics. Uh, for instance, do people in a given occupation uh, transit to work on, uh, you know, on public transit? Uh, so this is how we're thinking of risk. I suppose there's also the, the question of, you know, the, the uh, importance to the economy, because even in the early days of our public health measures, we recognized that certain sectors of the economy were deemed essential. And it was it was a different list in each province. I think Alberta had more of its economy open than a lot of other provinces. So what about the question of, you know, importance, economic importance? How does that factor in? Absolutely. So that's why we talk about a risk-reward assessment tool, right? Is that mm-hmm. we uh, we want to talk about risk, but we have to recognize that there are some sectors uh, that are huge contributors to the economy. Uh, and so we want to to factor that in, to, to look at the trade-off. Uh, and so we talk about the benefits of reopening in terms of different sectors' contribution to the economy. Uh, for instance, a high-reward sector would be restaurants, right? There's been uh, huge losses uh, in employment in restaurants, and so even even though it does present high risks because there's contact with the public uh, and people often work close together, it is a high reward sector. Uh, and so ideally, what we'd like to do is, is to, uh, as much as possible, start by reopening high reward, low risk sectors, and then we can start talking about the rest. Yeah, another example, and, and uh, it's been included, in fact, in Alberta's uh, first stage of relaunch has been uh, hairstylists, uh, you know, people who cut hair mm-hmm. uh, for a living, perhaps because, you know, a lot of people are, are, are desperate to get their hair cut. I don't know how important it is, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, economically speaking, uh, but it obviously is something that does entail a lot of risk. So as, as, as an example there, how, how do we approach, approach that? That's a great example because, like you said, uh, it is a high-risk occupation. So after doctors and nurses and, and people that work in healthcare in general, uh, hairstylists are at high risk because they, like I said, they are in close proximity. They see a lot of clients. Uh, it, it's an occupation that can be hard to um, to, to to have social distanciation. Um, but it's also a small sector, so, so the reward there is not as large, uh, for instance, as, as restaurants, as I said earlier. And so this is a particular case where uh, the, you know, the rewards are, are small compared to the risk. Now, as we look at the, the various risks that exist in, in different industries, there's also the question of how to mitigate those risks. And I know in mm-hmm. Alberta and other jurisdictions, for example, uh, it seemed pretty clear that meatpacking plants, uh, that, that there was a high risk of transmission. So a lot of steps have been taken, given the essential nature of that sort of work. Steps have been taken to try to mitigate a lot of those risks. 
So in terms then of governments recognizing those risks and deciding either, you know, A, should these businesses reopen? B, do we need to, to ensure that safety measures are put into place? How much emphasis can there be, does there need to be on, on risk mitigation? Well, that's one of the things uh, that makes us really excited about this tool is that it allows people, it can allow policymakers to identify those those risk mitigation opportunities. Uh, and so, there are occupations that are that are really hard um, uh, to to make safer, uh, but there are lots of occupations where we can identify. So we can use the the risk index to identify the source of the risk, uh, and then we can look for risk mitigation opportunities. And so the tool really is a way to systematically uh, work through the sources of risk of an occupation and identify those opportunities. Uh, so, Interesting you know, too. Yeah. 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 Um, because there was a breakdown for each province. Are, are there different factors uh, specific to, to various regions of the country? Uh, well, so so the things that are going to make a difference, so in terms of the job characteristics, um, those are uh, at the occupation level, so they're not going to vary across provinces. Uh, what's really going to make a big difference, and again, this can be a blind spot in policymaking, so this is one of the, the strengths of this tool, uh, what's going to make a difference is is who the workers are in each occupation. Uh, and so, for instance, if uh, hairstylists in Alberta uh, are more prone to live with elderly people, uh, this, is, this is going to be something that's going to be uh, really specific to Alberta. Uh, and so the tool, by, by having been extended to the provincial level, allows policymakers to really look at the specific economic context they're facing uh, in designing reopening plans. Yeah, and, and so I think this is a valuable tool. I mean, obviously, a lot of decisions are already being made uh, about mm-hmm. about reopening various aspects of the economy. Is, is it your sense maybe that this tool is necessary because we, we don't have a, a good approach on this? Or, or are you comfortable or confident that, that what we've seen so far would illustrate that, that policymakers are taking these kinds of things into consideration and this can sort of enhance that? Um, you know, as researchers, really, our job is to um, provide information and look at data and analyze the data uh, and provide the best information we can for evidence, evidence-based policymaking. Uh, and so, obviously, this is a situation that has been evolving constantly. Uh, and so, at any point in time, uh, you know, we're always trying to have the best information we can at that point in time. Uh, and so, this is what we've tried to do with the tool, really. Well, much more on this at uh, cdhow.org. Gail, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate this. Thank you. All right, that's uh, Gail Samar Duplan uh, with HEC Montreal, Research Chair in Intergenerational Economics, uh, part of the team uh, that developed this tool, which you can find at covid19.economics.ubc.ca, but you can go to cdhow.org, and they publish some of the research around this. Uh, so, yeah, it's an interesting approach in, in looking at where there's risk and where there's reward. And it's, it's both sides of the governments need to take into consideration here, right? And I think we, we are seeing that. When you look at, at the decisions that have been made here in Alberta for what falls into the various stages uh, of the relaunch, that's a big part of it. What needs to open? What are the, the more risky sectors of the economy when it comes to reopening? What can go a little bit later on in all of this? So restaurants is, a, is an obvious example, right? The industry has been hard hit. Uh, so that was, was part of phase one of the relaunch. Nightclubs is an example, not until phase three. Movie theaters, phase two. 
But it is also true, you know, as much as we refer to lockdown, uh, that that much of Alberta's economy uh, stayed open throughout all of this. You know, some of it with some restrictions, obviously. But uh, certainly Alberta has had and continues to have, you know, the, the highest percentage uh, of businesses that, that are that are open and operating. And we noted this story last week uh, once protests began in Minneapolis. Uh, a black CNN reporter who was there covering the protest was arrested. In fact, was arrested live on television. It was quite a moment. He was clearly not doing anything wrong, was trying to be cooperative, asking police, where do you want me to go? What do you need me to do? Uh, and they arrested him. He was eventually released later. Minnesota's governor even apologized for the incident. But unfortunately, it's not an isolated incident. Story here today from the Associated Press. Press passes and television cameras, once powerful symbols of neutrality that help protect journalists working in combat zones, are providing little defense for those covering the escalating urban conflicts in the United States. The U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, an online project supported in part by the U.S. Freedom of the Press Foundation and the Committee to Protect Journalists, had documented more than 180 separate incidents since protests erupted last week. That seems like a big number. Uh, so why is this happening? And, and what can be done about it? Joining us to talk more about that is Roy Gutterman. He is a journalism professor and director of the Tully Center for Free Speech at New York's Syracuse University. Roy, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, this seems like a, a, a very uh, concerningly high number. I mean, I, I suppose you're going to have situations where it's chaotic and maybe reporters are kind of caught up in the crowd and police don't have the time to, to sort out who's who, but... I, I don't know. I, what, what do you make of this? It's uh, it's kind of shocking when you when you, when you, when you really look at it. Uh, the numbers are are, are high, and um, I think the numbers reflect some of the tension and some of the chaos that that you know is playing out live on TV. But um, you know, it, it used to be that reporters would you know, arresting reporters or getting you know reporters getting. Uh, Attacked, it would be you know tangential to the to the issue, or reporters would be swept up in in the chaos. But it certainly looks like, in addition to all that, there is some targeting, or at least ignoring the press pass. Right, and and I suppose those are different things. I mean, you know, we have seen instances where it appears as though reporters were were targeted, arrested, or shoved to the ground. Uh, but there are those who appear to be getting caught when, when police are kind of indiscriminately uh, firing bullets or tear gas into a crowd that reporters are getting caught up in that. Does it, does it seem like an important distinction? It is. I, I do think there is a distinction. You know, reporters who go into hot zones and war zones uh, understand that they take certain risks, whether it's a, a protest that turns into a riot domestically or going into a war zone and you know, one of the far corners of the earth. So, you know, in those situations, reporters assume a certain risk, but, um, you know, it's still not a justification for uh, shooting bullets or, or tear gas at them. But uh, even, you know, even if a reporter assumes a risk, that's not an excuse for uh, or justification for any sort of violence against a reporter or even protesters who are just peacefully protesting. 
Yeah. Well, and there was the uh, Australian television crew. This was Monday night when they were clearing out Lafayette Square near the White House. And Australia has demanded investigation into what happened here. Police were using uh, shields and they were uh, attacking the crew. And it was it, it was pretty disturbing uh, enough so that, as as mentioned, Australia has, has voiced some official concerns. So there's an example where it's pretty obvious who the police are going after here. And clearly they're they're not doing anything wrong. That That was a troubling incident, wasn't it? Yeah, and um, you know, some this stuff used to happen from time to time, but it didn't happen on on camera. It didn't happen live on TV. So you know, a reporter could come back to the newsroom or go on the air and say and describe uh, the scene, but you know, the pictures tell a different story. The pictures really show the you know, the, the dramatic uh, events, the violence, and. Yeah, the indiscriminate violence, really. I mean, did they did the police really need to pepper spray or hose a bunch of reporters who had cameras? You know, now you can tell a reporter uh, and, and a videographer from their equipment. You know, not everybody's walking around with thousands of dollars worth of equipment or um, you know press passes or uh, press labels on their on, on their jackets or vests. So uh, you, you can tell. That uh, you know the, the uh, attitude toward the press has changed, and at least in this cycle. Well, and you know, maybe it's a coincidence, maybe it's not, but uh, you know certainly the the rhetoric from the president uh, about the the media, the fake news, the enemy of the people, that sort of thing. Um, I, I think it's had an impact on how people perceive the media. But do you think that it's it's played into this at all? Do you think that's been a factor? I, I believe that there has been a subtle element uh, uh, and a subtle influence uh, by that rhetoric from the top. Um, you know, there was a time when we had presidents who you know, disagreed with the press, might not have liked the press, but you know, didn't go out of their way to verbally attack the press or uh, sort of gleefully uh, accept uh, how the press is treated. Um, so I do believe that rhetoric has uh, diminished or denigrated the role of the press in uh, the eyes of some members of the public, and that trickles down to lower levels of um, of law enforcement. So in terms of, of addressing this, and, and, you know, I suppose there's at the individual level, media outlets can file complaints, uh, perhaps investigations can be launched, um, you know, and individual police forces can be held accountable. But if, if there's a larger problem here, uh, when it comes to freedom of the press, I mean, how, how does it need to be addressed, do you think? Well, you know, in the, in the states, we have the First Amendment, which is our our, our protection for the press. But um, First Amendment rights, you know, are not absolute. And, um, you know, when it comes to news gathering uh, in general, our courts are sort of a mixed bag on, uh, on protecting reporters' rights to gather news from... Uh, sources or even public places or even riots. But, you know, our press rights are still pretty strong, but you can wave the First Amendment all you want when you have riot police uh, blocking you out, uh, you know, arresting you or shooting rubber bullets at you or tear gas at you. Um, you know, all the laws in the, in, in the world won't protect you from that, uh, that violent outcome. So... Yeah. You know, what can we do? We, we, we live in a litigious society. 
we live, you know, we still do have rule of law. Um, and, um, you know, I, I hope that perhaps our, our laws and maybe even our lawmakers will take a stand. Uh, before we went on air, I, I just read a, a lawsuit filed by a freelance reporter in uh, Minnesota in federal court uh, arguing and call, asking for uh, uh, reparations and damages and, and, uh, and even an apology uh, from law enforcement. And it's a pretty, and, and you know, we'll see where that goes. It's a federal lawsuit. And, uh, you know, we'll, we, we, we do live in a, you know, in a, with, in, in a, under rule of law. And hopefully when some of this settles down, uh, we'll get things straightened out. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we've got serious issues. We've got a, uh, several crises going on at the same time and we have actual loss of life. Um, it's, uh, it's a dark uh, situation right now. Yeah. Really is. Uh, well, Professor Goodman, we'll leave it there for now. Appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate the insight on this. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Uh, there you go. It's uh, Roy Getterman. He's a professor of journalism at, at uh, Syracuse University, also director of the university's Tully Center for Free Speech. Uh, and it's also worth noting, too, that, that a lot of these incidents that have been detailed uh, in this report that we mentioned, uh, that's a project of the uh, Committee to Protect Journalists and the U.S. Freedom of the Press Foundation, um, that there, there have been instances of protesters themselves accosting or even assaulting members of the media. Uh, CNN's offices in, in Atlanta were vandalized uh, in some of the early days of protests in that city. And, and there have been incidents. There was one uh, video I saw where I think it was a Fox News reporter who was being chased down uh, by some protesters. So that was frightening. And so, sure, there's been that, that anger that's been taken out on, on the media. that We don't like how you cover these things. So you're not covering this. So you're not covering that. Um, so in, in volatile situations, I mean, there's, there is an inherent danger there, I suppose. Obviously, it's crucial for members of the media to be present, to be covering this, so people can really see and understand what's going on. What are these protesters doing? What are they saying? What's happening? Uh, but things can and have got pretty chaotic. Uh, now, hopefully, when police are aware that uh, there are media there covering an event, that they will use some caution and some discretion in how they approach the situation. I, I can concede that in some situations, it might not be immediately clear. If you've got a large crowd of people, how obvious is it that in that crowd there are some journalists who are covering the event? Uh, especially, I would imagine, a lot of uh, news organizations are trying to limit the number of people they're sending out there, try to keep the coverage as bare bones in a technical sense as possible. So if you've got someone who's holding up a, a camera phone to get some images, well, a lot of people are there doing exactly the same thing, holding up their cameras to get images. So it might not be immediately apparent who's the journalism and who's simply taking pictures. Uh, but certainly there have been some, some troubling incidents where it does appear as though uh, reporters were very clearly being targeted. And that's unfortunate. All right. So as we were talking about earlier, the Alberta government yesterday tabled some new legislation to uh, bring in some specific vaping regulations under the Tobacco and Smoking Reduction Act. Now, the Alberta government says they want to strike a balance between encouraging smokers to embrace harm reduction, switch from cigarettes to, to vaping, but also keeping it out of the hands of kids. So it reinforces that 18 is the minimum age. Obviously, that's enshrined in federal legislation. 
Uh, but more importantly, uh, there are going to be some restrictions on advertising and displays. Convenience stores and gas stations are going to have to treat vaping products like they treat tobacco products. And a lot of the same restrictions will apply to where these products can be used. Vaping and smoking will not be allowed on hospitals, school or child care property, playgrounds, sports or playing fields, skateboards or bicycle parks, public outdoor pools or splash pads, zoos and outdoor theaters. So there's going to be some alignments uh, between vaping and, and smoking, even though obviously they, they, are, they are different. So does this strike the right balance? And as you heard earlier, there's, there's some differences uh, of opinion on that. But joining us on the line is uh, Dr. Chris Lalonde, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Victoria and academic advisor to the group Rights for Vapors. Uh, Dr. Lalonde, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, so your, your initial reaction here, what Alberta's doing, uh, the importance of, of striking a balance and wh- whether you think they did so. Well, I think striking a balance is what Health Canada's been saying for a very long time. And I think... Alberta's actually come as close as anyone has to actually doing that. So the striking the balance part is, look, it's been illegal for youth to use tobacco, alcohol, e-cigarettes, all these sorts of things. And so the issue has never been, should we further restrict adult use of any of those products? No, we should enforce the existing laws to restrict youth use. And so I think Mm -hmm. Alberta has... uh, has really put the emphasis on that, and that's where the emphasis should be. Yeah, and a big part of that, uh, as it is with smoking, so businesses that, that sell to youth uh, are going to face some, some increased penalty, and that, that's an important component then of that, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's what all the rest of Canada should be doing. Mm-hmm. What about flavors? Uh, the Alberta government has uh, come under some criticism because they didn't include a ban on flavored vaping products, but was, was that necessary? No, I don't think it's necessary at all. I think it's, again, it's putting the emphasis in the wrong place. So, um, you know, we have flavored alcohol products, but we don't ban them because youth use them for adults. I mean, it just... It, doesn't really make any sense. It, it makes absolute sense to restrict access to flavors for youth or restrict you know, access to the products for youth. Um, but to ban flavors just seems to me uh, inviting more trouble than it's worth. Well, and I suppose it, we should understand then where, why youth are, are using these products or what's driving that. And, and I suppose if, if a case could be made that flavored products were a big part of the problem, that would be one thing. But from what I've seen, the evidence would indicate that it's not really a big part of the equation here, that it's more about the cool factor and, and peer pressure, and I suppose now social media plays into that. It doesn't seem like flavored products are a big part of that. No, they're not a part of it at all. In fact, the biggest study of that came out of the U.S., and they asked, you know, why did you first try any cigarette? And uh, it was curiosity was number one way, way down on the list was the flavor or the smell or something like that. So kids are using these because other kids are using this, and they're also using it because adults are telling them not to. Um, you know, the, the best way to get kids to do something is tell them not to do it. Um, so flavors are not a part of it at all. So when, you know, Juul, the big bad Juul, um, restricted their flavor range, kids just switched to whatever flavor was available. So mm-hmm. everyone screams and cries about cotton candy. Well, there really isn't any cotton candy flavor, and 
Um, you know, if you actually look at the real evidence about who eats cotton candy, the real cotton candy, seventy <laughs> percent right. of it is adults. So you know, sure, adults like flavors. Everyone, we're human. We like flavors. Um, the question regarding e-cigarettes is, what's the role that flavors actually play? And for adult smokers, flavors are key. So the last thing they want is something that tastes like tobacco. They want to get as far away from the taste, smell of tobacco as they can. Um, so that's actually one of the least popular flavors. If you ask anyone who runs a, a vape store um, what their most popular flavors are, tobacco is way down there. And flavorless, so people somehow imagine that, well, if we just banned flavors but let tobacco, flavorless e-cigarettes exist, then adult smokers would flock to flavorless. Well, no one does. Mm -hmm. You know, like 1% of the sales from a vape shop. Um, so flavors is a red herring. That's not why youth are smoking or vaping or drinking or doing anything. Um, and to restrict those when they are shown to be so important for adult smokers to switch uh, is just the wrong way to go from a public health perspective as far as I can see. Yeah. What about the question around public use? Because uh, it does appear as though vaping is going to be prohibited in a lot of the same public spaces as smoking is. I mean, clearly, they're very different products, very different risk when it comes to secondhand smoke versus secondhand vape. I mean, at the same time, I guess it can be a challenge for those tasked with enforcing those bylaws to differentiate between is that a cigarette or is, is that a vaping product? But how do we approach that side of it, do you think? Well, I think from a pragmatic point of view, you're right. It might be hard for, you know, wait staff in a restaurant to tell the difference. And, um, and I don't think adult vapors would object to that. Um, I think the restrictions on where you can smoke, particularly in outdoor spaces, are, have maybe gone too far. But that's okay. That's a, an argument for another day. Um, so just adding vaping to the existing legislation is, I think, in the minds of adult vapors, that's fine. We can work with that, right? Mm -hmm. We don't need to vape in the skate park because we don't. Um, but, um, you know, I think beyond the, the, the practicalities of, of making it happen, we need to somehow step back and think, who are we trying to protect here? So a lot of argument has been made, particularly in British Columbia where I live, that um, vaping renormalizes smoking. And, I, and I, I just don't understand the logic of that argument, that somehow children seeing people vaping will smoke. It makes absolutely no sense in my mind. It's like saying we can't allow people to exhale in the cold winter months because it looks like they're smoking. Right. It, it just makes no sense to me at all. But, but beyond that, in terms of, of the practicalities of enforcement, I think it's fine. And adult vapors can absolutely live with, you can't vape where you can't smoke. It's a simple rule. Everyone understands it. Fine. Mm -hmm. Move forward. Yeah. Uh, much more at rightsforvapors.com. That's the number four, rightsforvapors.com. Uh, Dr. Lawn, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Right. Appreciate thanks. it. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, All right. Dr. Chris Lalonde, University of Victoria uh, professor, the uh, academic advisor to uh, the group Rights for Vapors. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. 
Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.